Turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 13 this morning. 2 Samuel chapter 13. Let me say from the bottom of my heart, thank you to all those that came out, labored yesterday. And not just yesterday. There were some folks that weren't able to make it yesterday, but they were here throughout the week. And, uh, of course, Miss Rachel and Brother Kerry have been here all week. And uh, I'm just thankful for them. Thankful for folks that serve the Lord. Amen. And uh, I'll tell you this, as a pastor... Couldn't get done if only the pastor was the one doing it. It's got to take more, and I'm thankful for our church and the faithfulness of God's people. And I'm excited for this week, amen. Like Brother Jim said, you pray for this week. The devil would love to do everything he can to disrupt what God's going to do this week. Uh, but I believe God has has the power to overcome that. And I believe if we'll yield ourselves to him and make ourselves available to him uh, this week, I believe God can use us to get victory this week. So I encourage you to be sure and do that. Second Samuel chapter 13. Now I'm going to read a pretty good amount of scripture this morning. And I promise I'm not trying to make a habit of doing that in the preaching, but we're going to use everything we read. So uh, don't feel as though it is time wasted. Time reading the Word of God, of course, is never wasted. Uh, we're going to begin reading in verse number 1, and we're going to read down to verse 35. I'm not going to keep you guessing. Amen. So uh, verse number 1. Down to verse number 35, 2 Samuel chapter 13. The Bible says this, And it came to pass after this that Absalom, the son of David, had a fair sister whose name was Tamar. And Amnon, the son of David, loved her. Amnon is the uh, brother of Absalom and of Tamar. He is the half-brother of them both. Amnon, the son of David, loved her. And Amnon was so vexed that he fell sick for his sister Tamar. For she was a virgin, and Amnon thought it hard for him to do anything to her. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shimea, David's brother. So he's a cousin to Amnon. And Jonadab was a very subtle man. And he said unto him, Why art thou, being the king's son, lean from day to day? Wilt thou not tell me? And Amnon said unto him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. And Jonadab said unto him, Lay thee down on thy bed, and make thyself sick. And when thy father cometh to see thee, say unto him, I pray thee, let my sister Tamar come and give me meat, and dress the meat in my sight, that I may see it and eat it at her hand. So Amnon lay down and made himself sick. And when the king was come to see him, Amnon said unto the king, I pray thee, let Tamar my sister come and make me a couple cakes in my sight, that I may eat at her hand. Then David sent home to Tamar, saying, Go now to thy brother Amnon's house and dress him meat. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house, and he was laid down. And she took flour and kneaded it and made cakes in his sight and did bake the cakes. And she took a pan and poured them out before him, but he refused to eat. And Amnon said, Have out all men from me. And they went out every man from him. And Amnon said unto Tamar, Bring the meat into the chamber that I may eat of thine hand. And Tamar took the cakes which she had made and brought them into the chamber to Amnon, her brother. When she had brought them unto him to eat, he took hold of her and said unto her, Come lie with me, my sister. And she answered him, Nay, my brother, do not force me, for no such thing ought to be done in Israel. Do not thou this folly, and I, whither shall I cause my shame to go? And as for thee, thou shalt be as one of the fools in Israel. Now, therefore, I pray thee, speak unto the king, for he will not withhold me from thee. Howbeit he would not hearken unto her voice, but being stronger than she forced her and lay with her. Then Amnon hated her exceedingly, so that the hatred wherewith he hated her was greater than the love wherewith he had loved her. And Amnon said unto her, Arise, be gone. And she said unto him, There is no cause, 
This evil in sending me away is greater than the other that thou didst unto me. But he would not hearken unto her. Then he called his servant that ministered unto him and said, Put now this woman out from me and bolt the door after her. She had a garment of divers colors upon her, for with such robes were the king's daughters that were virgins apparel. Then his servant brought her out and bolted the door after her. And Tamar put ashes on her head and rent her garment of divers colors that was on her and laid her hand on her head and went on crying. And Absalom, her brother, said unto her, Hath Amnon thy brother been with thee? But now hold thy peace, my sister. He is thy brother. Regard not this thing. So Tamar remained desolate in her brother Absalom's house. But when King David heard of all these things, he was very wroth. And Absalom spake unto his brother Amnon neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had forced his sister Tamar. And it came to pass after two full years that Absalom had sheep shearers in Baal Hazor, which is beside Ephraim. And Absalom invited all the king's sons. And Absalom came to the king and said, Behold now, thy servant hath sheep shearers. Let the king, I beseech thee, and his servants go with thy servant. And the king said to Absalom, Nay, my son, let us not all now go, lest we be chargeable unto thee. And he pressed him, howbeit he would not go, but blessed him. Then said Absalom, If not, I pray thee, let my brother Amnon go with us. And the king said unto him, Why should he go with thee? But Absalom pressed him that he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. Now Absalom had commanded his servants, saying, Mark ye now when Amnon's heart is merry with wine. And when I say unto you, Smite Amnon, then kill him, fear not. Have not I commanded you? Be courageous and be valiant. And the servants of Absalom did unto Amnon as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose, and every man gat him up upon his mule and fled. And it came to pass while they were in the way that tidings came to David, saying, Absalom hath slain all the king's sons, and there is not one of them left. Then the king arose and tare his garments and lay on the earth, and all his servants stood by with their clothes rent. And Jonadab, the son of Shimea, David's brother, answered, and said, Let not my lord suppose that they have slain all the young men, the king's sons. For Amnon only is dead. For by the appointment of Absalom this hath been determined from the day that he forced his sister Tamar. Now therefore let not my lord the king take the thing to his heart to think that all the king's sons are dead. For Amnon only is dead. But Absalom fled. And the young man that kept the watch lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, there came much people by the way of the hillside behind him. And Jonadab said unto the king, Behold, the king's sons come, as thy servant said, so it is. Let's pray together. Father, we love you this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth of it. Help us now in the preaching, Lord. I pray that you would uh, expose our hearts, Lord. I pray that you would unveil to us our condition. Lord, if there's anything in our life that's not what it ought to be, I, I pray that you'd speak it to our heart and mind. Show it to us. And Lord, deal with us according to thy will and in grace and mercy. We'll be sure to thank you for it. Lord, we love you and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for your patience. I know that was quite a bit of reading. In Second uh, Samuel chapter 13, we have what is undoubtedly one of the darkest hours in the life of King David's home and family. Uh, this is uh, the result of the sin that David had committed with Bathsheba and in the murder of Uriah, God had prophesied that the sword would never depart from King David's house. And certainly we see that throughout his family's history. Heartbreak after heartbreak and uh, tragedy after tragedy. Hey, can I say this? Uh, what we do and how we live affects more than just us. 
Let me just say it again for those that might not have heard. What we, what we do and how we live, and I'm, ta- I'm saying this as a parent this morning, and I'm saying this to parents and grandparents and aunts and uncles. I'm saying what we do and how we live affects more than just us. David's sin had brought a stain and a scar and a cancer upon his family that almost entirely devoured the light out of Israel of David's household. And when we read 2 Samuel 13, what we really have in all of both the tact and the bluntness of the Holy Spirit's words is we have a picture of what sin does in a family when it is allowed to exist there. We read through this and we have a story of some of the darkest things that can happen in human society of rape, of incest, of abuse, of, uh, of murder in this passage. But here's what I want you to understand. Every bit of that happened because sin was present there. A lot of times people look and they'll say, well, you know, preacher, how can a loving God allow suffering in the world? Hey, a loving God has done everything he could to keep suffering out of this world. But rebellious mankind has sought to go his own way and in sin and unrighteousness has introduced suffering into this world. Don't blame God on the heartache in this world. Hey, that isn't God's doing, that's man's doing. And here we have it marched for us on full display what happens when sin takes root in a family. But I want you to notice with me a phrase and an individual in our passage before us. The Bible mentions a man. He is the cousin of Absalom, Tamar, and Amnon. And he is mentioned almost in passing. In, in, in the volume of, of passages we read, verses we've read, it's easy even to skip over this individual and not even notice him in comparison to the others. But notice what the Bible says in verse number 3. But Amnon had a friend. Now he was more than a friend, he was a cousin. But the Bible calls him a friend, denoting that their relationship was not just of common blood, but was of common bond as well. Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shimea, David's brother. And Jonadab was a very subtle man. I, when I read through this, there's a few things. I don't know if you're like this, but when I read the, the Bible, there's a few words that sort of send up bells ringing and flags flying in my mind. Things that connect other things in Scripture to them. And when I read about this individual named Jonadab and the role that he played in this dark sin of Amnon in his family in destroying Tamar's life, in destroying his own life, in destroying, by the way, the life of David and the life of Absalom by extension. When I read about this man Jonadab, he sort of reminds me of someone. In fact, I'd say this, when I read uh, Jonadab's part in this sordid tale, he reminds me of the part that the devil plays in the life of a believer in instigating them to commit sin. Now, I want to be very careful here, I, and I want to be very clear here. Uh, Amnon made his own choice. Jonadab did not force him to commit this sin. He did not make him commit this sin. Uh, Jonadab wouldn't have said like old Flip Wilson did, the devil made me do it, right? Uh, he made his own choice. All the young people went, what? <laughs> what? <laughs> It, 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 sometimes we'll blame our own actions uh, on other people and on the devil in particular. In particular, let me say that had Amnon chosen to do right, he would have done right. And the reason he did wrong is he chose to do wrong. But do not dismiss the influence of this man Jonadab in his life. In your life and mine, if we choose to commit sin, it'll be because we chose to commit sin. But understand, the devil's going to do everything he can in your life and mine to try to cause us to commit sin 
and to commit unrighteousness. Well, we might say, why does he remind us of the devil? There's three reasons that I would give very quickly. Number one, uh, I'm reminded of the devil. I I think he looks like the devil in this passage from his nature. Did you notice what the Bible said about him? The Bible said that he was a very subtle man. Now that word subtle is packed with meaning. It does not merely mean deceptive. It means artful in your deception. It does not merely mean uh, wicked, uh, but it means someone that is crafty in his wickedness. And don't we see that in Jonadab's behavior here? In fact, we'll notice it in more nuance here in a few moments. But I would say this, he's not the first one that was subtle in the Bible. The Bible tells us in Genesis chapter 3 that the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field. Can I tell you, the devil's not going to come kick in your front door. Not unless that's the only thing that will work. But most of the time what he's going to do is he's going to come in and try to whisper in your ear the same way Jonadab did. So his nature reminds me of the Lord. Number two, his name rem- or of the devil. His name reminds me of the devil. Do you know what his name means? It means Jehovah is willing. Now, there's a couple ways we could read that. We could read that as the will of Jehovah, but that's not what it means. It means Jehovah is willing. In other words, God is willing. Can I tell you this? The devil will come up and talk to you and try to make you think your sin is the will of God. In fact, by the devil's standards, there's nothing that God prohibits. Uh, That's part of the reason in our society today everything is accepted because uh, the devil is the God of this world and his spirit and his attitude and his mantra is that of permissiveness. Uh, Let me tell you this. Hey, listen, if, if the God that some folks worship is God, I don't want that God. I'm talking about the God that is fine with any sort of depravity, any sort of iniquity, any sort of corruption. Uh, the, uh, the, the God that some folks worship that would sanction all sorts of immorality, the abuse of children, uh, the desecration of the marriage, uh, the burning of unnatural affections. If that God was the real God, that's not the God I'd want. But you know, the devil will come along and he will wrap everything in the garb of religion to make us feel like it is acceptable. And can I just get a little bit more, a little bit more direct with you? He'll come along when you're tempted in your life and he will convince you that what you're doing, you're doing because God allows it. And that if God wanted to stop you from committing that sin, he could stop you. So if he's allowing you to commit it, it must be God's okay with it. Remember what the devil said when he came in the Garden of Eden. He said, listen, God doth know that in the day that you eat thereof, you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. He didn't come along and say, this is going to wreck and ruin your life. He came along and he said, listen, God knows what's going to happen here, but really, God would want the best for you, wouldn't he? And isn't your sin what you desire? Isn't that the best for you? I'm saying he's a subtle individual. I think of it from his name. I think he reminds me of the devil because of his nature, but I think he reminds me of the devil because of his nefariousness. When we read through this passage at the role that Jonadab plays, the wickedness, the cruelty, the calculating nature that he has, man, it looks exactly to me like the devil. I want you to notice a few things in this passage. I'm going to preach to you on this thought. And I guess on the audio they can't see it, so I'm just going to tell them that I'm air quoting here. But I'm going to preach to you on a friend like Jonadab. The devil will never come to you appealing and appearing like an enemy. He will always treat with you like he is a friend. He will not come to you and say, hey, I'm the devil here to destroy your life. He'll show up in your life and act like your best friend and try to get you to sell everything good in your life that God has done for you. Well, notice a few things with me this morning and then we'll be done. Number one, I want you to see with me Jonadab's subtlety. Notice very carefully the way that he speaks to Amnon. The Bible says in verse number four that Jonadab said this unto him, 
Why art thou, being the king's son, lean from day to day? We are told that Amnon was sick. Literally, we could, we could use the word love sick. He was so bothered, so troubled by the feelings he had for his sister that he could not eat. He could not, he could not feel well. He couldn't function. He couldn't get up and operate from day to day. Jonadab comes slinking and slithering into the room, looks at him and says, why art thou, being the king's son, lean from day to day? Wilt thou not tell me? Amnon said unto him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Jonadab said unto him, Lay thee down on thy bed and make thyself sick. And when thy father comes to see thee, say unto him, I pray thee, let my sister Tamar come and give me meat and dress the meat in my sight, that I may see it and eat it at her hand. Let me say that in this we have a master class in the art of deception. Notice the three things that Jonadab did. Number one, when he comes in the room, he flattered him. Notice how he says it in verse 4. Why art thou, being the king's son, lean from day to day? Wilt thou not tell me? I'd propose this to you. I think you already knew what was bothering Amnon. But he comes in and he seeks an entrance by first flattering Amnon and having in his mind the great status that he had in society. In other words, he walks in and he says, why should you have to deny your desires? You are the king's son. Why don't you just take what you want, live as you please, and do whatever you desire? Isn't that just like the devil? What does he do when he comes to us in our moment of temptation? He comes to us and he says, why should you have to resist this temptation when so many others are engaging in it? He'll come to you and he'll say, why don't you deserve a little bit of sin? Why don't you deserve a little bit of unrighteousness? Why should you have to live and deny yourself? After all, aren't you the master of your own life? Can I tell you this? You say, preacher, what's the antidote to that? Well, you just remind the devil that you are not the master of your own life. You're bought with a price. You don't belong to you. You may be a son of the king, but you're just a beggar like Mephibosheth that's been elevated to the king's table. You wouldn't be there without his grace. And as such, you are not your own. You are bought with a price. But the devil will come along and he will emphasize your independence. He will emphasize your soul autonomy. He will try to say to you, why shouldn't you go do this after all? Don't you deserve it? How many times in our life have we seen people's lives wrecked with this one little lie? After all, I deserve it. How many marriages have been destroyed by a spouse saying, I think I deserve this? How many homes have been wrecked by children saying like the prodigal son did, give me the portion of thy goods that falleth to me. And he didn't say it, but the implicit thing after that is after all, I deserve it. Can I tell you this? We got what we deserve. We'd be in hell tonight. Uh, you better thank God we don't get what we deserve. And our, our attitude, our spirit should not be one of I deserve, of entitlement. See, when we have a, a, an attitude of entitlement, boy, I might just say something here. You ready? When we have an attitude of entitlement, all a man has to do to put chains on us is promise us something we think we're owed. That's what's happening in our country right now. When you think you're entitled to something, the only thing a man has to do to put chains on you is say, I'm going to give you what you deserve in the first place. You say, how do we fix that, preacher? By being reminded of what we really deserve. We really deserve absolutely nothing. We really deserve, spiritually speaking, a home in hell forever. Condemnation is what we really deserve. And you say, well, preacher, if we get anything above that, yeah, that's grace. That's grace. So he comes and he flatters him. Number two, I want you to notice that he humored him. Notice what Amnon says here, his reply. Amnon said unto him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. 
That is a carefully crafted response. Because the reality is that Tamar is as much his sister as Absalom is his brother. He did not say, I love Tamar, my sister. But he called Absalom his brother. What's he doing? He's trying to frame his sin in such a way as to make it acceptable. Isn't that what we do? I've told people before, and I try to make a habit, imperfectly so, I'll admit, in my life. But when I confess my sin to God, I try to call it by the ugliest name I know. I mean, listen, if I lied, I try to tell God I lied. I didn't twist the truth. I didn't bend things. I, I lied. I, listen, if I, if I have anger in my heart, I try to say to God, I had a murderous impulse in my heart and mind. I had a hateful, rage-filled impulse in my mind. I don't try to sugarcoat it and say, well, you know, I lost my temper, Lord. I'm sorry. I just, I, I just, I, I had that moment of weakness and lost my temper. You know, you know why? Because our flesh needs to be reminded of what sin is. It needs to be reminded of what sin is. We always, when we are flirting with temptation, we will frame things in such a way as to make our sin seem not as bad. Now, the Bible says Jonadab was a friend to Amnon. But we know and understand that there is some nuance to this. We understand that the Holy Ghost is not just giving us a historical record. It is He is doing that, but He is also, with the beauty and literary irony that only God possesses, He is showing us that just because a man calls himself a friend, that doesn't mean he's a friend. But can I ask you this question? What would Jonadab have done if he had been a real friend? Jonadab could have counseled him to abandon this sinful and unnatural desire. He could have told him that it was lust and not love. Instead, Amnon's declaration went unanswered and was implicitly validated by Jonadab's silence. What he could have said to him is, Absalom's sister. No, Amnon, she's your sister. And you may feel this way towards her and God will forgive you of that. God will help you through that. And God will will meet your need as far as whatever emotionally you're struggling with. But Amnon, please don't make this mistake. Don't matter how you sugarcoat it. Don't matter how you say it. It's sin. It's wickedness. She is your sister just as much as Absalom is your brother. But you know, the devil's never going to talk us out of his job. He's never going to go in and, and lay a foundation of temptation and then pull up short and say, you know, this may be a bad idea after all. He's always, you know what he'll do? He will humor us. If Jonadab had been the friend that he claimed to be, he would have said, Amnon, I don't care what you say, my friend. What you are feeling is not righteous. It is not okay. It is not. But instead, you know what he did? He, he did that listening. You know what the devil will do? He ain't, the devil ain't interested in listening to you unless listening to you will lure you into sin. You know, part of the problem in today, in our society today, and I guess to be honest, this has been a problem <laughs> time eternal, is that we, society, will implicitly clap along and encourage our unrighteousness. This has accelerated in the age of social media we live in. The reason is why is because we've created this little digital kingdom of people that will only clap for us and will never criticize us. And we have carefully curated the, the population of that world to only include people. And you hear it all the time. I've heard Christians say it. I've heard them say things like, if you succeed, look around and notice who's not clapping for you. They're not really your friend. Hey, could be they're not clapping because what you're doing is not really success. Could be they're not proud of you because what you're doing is going to destroy your life. We all need truth tellers in our life. People like Nathan that will point a divine finger at us and say, David, thou art the man. And what a difference it could have made if Amnon had had a Nathan instead of a Jonadab. But the devil will always come and he'll stroke your ego. He'll make you feel as though your uh, wicked temptation is uh, is certified, validated, acceptable, appropriate. That's part of his 
M-O. So he, he flattered him, he humored him. But then notice verse 5, man, this is amazing. Not only did he flatter and humor him, but he steered him. Verse 5, Jonadab said unto him, Lay thee down on my bed, and make thyself sick. And when thy father cometh to see thee, say unto him, I pray thee, let my sister Tamar come and give me meat, and dress the meat in my sight, that I may see it and eat it at her hand. Notice what he did not say. He did not say, and rape your sister. He never said that. You know why? He didn't have to say that. You know, the devil will very often in your life, he will not come with a big flashing banner and say, commit sin, commit sin, commit sin. Instead, he'll just carefully plant a seed in your mind and then step back and watch your flesh take over. In fact, I would say this, that a man operating in the flesh, there's very little work the devil has to do. Hey, in my flesh, Paul said, dwelleth no good thing. We, like Israel of old, are bent towards backsliding. And because of that, the devil very rarely will have to come in and sell you the whole sin lock, stock, and barrel. All he has to do is come in and plant a seed in your mind. If you will be vigilant, you'll see this happening in your life. You will find that most of the time, moments of failure began with some seemingly insignificant, harmless moment. Some moment when someone gave you an opportunity to bend and twist the truth instead of telling the truth. Some moment when some lurid thing flashed itself uh, across your mind's eye or across your physical eye. Some moment when a person's unreasonableness and uh, ugliness gave uh, way and gave place to your anger and your rage. But it rarely begins with some aghast atrocity. It usually begins with some small thing. He just steered him. He just sort of plotted a course. He never told him to do wrong. He never told him to commit sin. Now, I think if he had had to tell him that, he would have told him that. I think when we come to the end of this chapter, we realize that Jonadab had planned this from the beginning. He had very distinct, specific desires and designs behind what he did in Amnon's life. But he never came out and openly, blatantly said it. Can I say this? For 60 years, people have been calling uh, old-time preachers a bunch of loon bats and conspiracy theorists and old fogies for standing for truth. Uh, whenever we'd say things like, hey, listen, we, we need to, we need to dress appropriately. Men need to dress like men. Uh, women need to dress like women. Everybody say, oh, you're such an old fogey. You're so behind the times. Yeah, and now folks don't know which bathroom to go in. And when people would say, hey, listen, you need to guard your home. You need to guard your marriage. If you're in, a, if you're in a workplace, men, you don't need to have friendships with, with other women that are not your wife. Uh, women, you don't need to be having friendships with other men that are not your husband. You can be polite in a workplace, but you don't need to develop relationships. You know, all them preachers, bunch of dirty-minded preachers. I mean, there may, must be a problem. Yeah, and the divorce rate's over half today. I'm just saying, let's just tell a little truth this morning. Hey, listen, whenever, whenever, whenever preachers are saying, listen, you need to prioritize the local church above secular activities. You need to pri- I, whoa, 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 I'll just say it again. Sometimes you just step on one, you know? <laughs> I didn't, this ain't in my notes, but sometimes you just walk into a minefield, you'll just step on one, hear it click. Uh, preacher's been saying for 60, hey, you need to prioritize the local church above secular activities. Oh, you're just a tyrant, preacher. You're just a tyrant. You just want everybody at church to make you feel better and clap for your sermons. Yeah, and today, uh, you just about can't beg or bribe young people to come through the doors of church. And we are living in a day when there's an entire generation of people that are godless. I'm just saying, maybe they weren't so crazy. I'm just saying they weren't so crazy. Hey, I'm 33 years old, I think. Something like that. I'm just looking backwards. That's all I'm doing. I'm just saying, maybe they weren't so crazy. You know why? Because the devil's not just going to show up and say, hey, I brought you a big old bushel of sin here. 
He's going to come and plant a seed. You know why? Because a seed yields a crop. A seed yields a crop. And all he has to do is plant that seed in your mind. So I see Jonadab's subtlety. Number two, I want you to notice Amnon's iniquity. Verse number six. We'll read verse six down to ten. It says, so Amnon laid down and made himself sick. And when the king was come to see him, Amnon said unto the king, I pray thee, let my si- let Tamar, my sister, come and make me a couple of cakes in my sight that I may eat at her hand. Then David sent home to Tamar, saying, Go now to thy brother Amnon's house and dress meat. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house, and he was laid down, and she took flour and kneaded it and made cakes in his sight and did bake the cakes. And she took a pan and poured them out before him, but he refused to eat. And Amnon said, Have out all men from me. And they went out every man from him. And Amnon said unto Tamar, Bring the meat into the chamber that I may eat of thine hand. And Tamar took the cakes which she had made and brought them into the chamber of Amnon to Amnon, her brother. Let me say, number one, in his iniquity, we see him devising. So what do you mean, preacher? We see him concocting a plan. We could probably use the word entrapment, couldn't we? We see him crafting a a plan in which he can prey on his sister. But you know what I think is interesting? Up to this point, no one has spoken of him forcing his sister. I think we could maybe even, if we wanted to give the benefit of the doubt, we could imagine that Amnon may have not even really known what his end plan was. But here's what happens. He calls, he lays himself down in bed sick, hoping that Tamar is just going to come running and rescuing him. That doesn't happen. David, his father, comes in. And so now he... Attempt number one has been thwarted. You see what I'm saying? Attempt number one has been thwarted. So he says to his father, David, I don't want you to feed me. I don't want your servants to feed me. Send Tamar, my sister. Let her come and feed me. Maybe he thought she'd get the clue, come in, fall madly in love with him. That didn't happen. She comes in the door and she makes some cakes and pours them out before him and says, all right, there you go. Call me if you need me. Enjoy the chicken soup. Attempt number two didn't work. So he says, I'll tell you what, why don't you come into the bedroom He sends all of his servants out and feed me this food. She comes into the bedroom. All the servants go out and he says, come lie with me, my sister. And she says, do not force me. Attempt number three failed. You know what you find? A a slow progression and edging towards this moment of sin. You know that in your life and mine, most of the time, when we wake up, and this is what happens, by the way, in a few moments. I'm not trying to sympathize, and I'm not sympathizing with Amnon. Amnon was a cruel man, and his murder, far as I'm concerned, judicially, he got what he deserved. But probably it is likely Amnon had no intention of it going that far. He probably, like most people that are lovesick, and like most people that are sin-sick, had delusions that this fantasy was going to play out in his mind however he thought it was. But you see, here's the reality. Every disappointment brought a doubling down towards that sin. You know what will happen in your life and mine when we get engaged and involved in sin? Every sin won't be enough. We'll have to go further. We'll have to go further. We'll have to go further. And what at first was just flirting with sin, he wakes up, he realizes what he's done, and he hates Tamar and sends her out of the room. That tells me he probably had no intention of it originally. But you know what will happen? Your flesh and mine will devise ways for us to commit sin. I'll just go ahead and be honest with you. I'll be honest with you about me and my flesh. If I want to sin, if it ain't easy to sin, I'll find a way to sin. I'll do whatever I have to to orchestrate a scenario that somehow soothes my guilty conscience about the sin that I'm committing. Amnon did not trip backwards into this atrocity, but he carefully devised 
a plan. But notice verse number 11. The Bible says, When she had brought them unto him, he took hold of her and said unto her, Come lie with me, my sister. We see him deciding. I want to be careful how I say this. In some ways, he decided long before this moment. He had committed in his mind that he desired something. And he was going to do whatever it took. But he probably never realized what it would take. In that moment, though, he makes a decision. And he says to himself, I'll do whatever it takes to satisfy this sin. I, I, I want to say something. I hope this don't sound crass to you, but, I, but it's just speaking truth to you. I heard a preacher say this one time, and I think it's true. Hey, listen, young people, uh, the, back, uh, the steamed up back seat of a car is not the time to be formulating your convictions. We find ourselves in the middle of sin. When we find ourselves right at the threshold, right at the doorstep of unrighteousness, that's not the time to be trying to figure out where our standards are. We need to be making up our mind before we ever get to that moment. You know what you'll find? Usually if you make up your mind before you get to that moment, and this is no criticism on Tamar at all, but I'm saying in your life and mine, usually if we make up our moment before we ever get there, we probably won't ever get there. If we wait till that crucial moment, we're always going to make the wrong decision. You know why? We're not operating in the Spirit. We're not even operating in common sense at that point. We're operating in the flesh. I see him deciding. Number three, I see him disregarding. Now, he still has an option as of verse 11. He's not. He's done something that would be embarrassing, would be awkward, would be shameful, but he could ask forgiveness. No one knew about it except him and Jonadab and Tamar, and he could have moved on with his life. And God gives him another obstacle that he has to climb over if he wants to commit sin. Verse 12, she answered him, Nay, my brother, do not force me, for no such thing ought to be done in Israel. Do not thou this folly. And I, whither shall I cause my shame to go? And as for thee, thou shalt be as one of the fools in Israel. Now therefore I pray thee, speak unto the king, for he will not withhold me from thee. Howbeit he would not hearken unto her voice, but being stronger than she forced her and lay with her. I would say this, we see him not only devising and deciding, but we see him disregarding some things. There are certain things that Tamar says to him, she's pleading with him to not commit this sin, to not commit this cruelty. And the things she says are true. And he disregards those things because he has to disregard them if he's going to commit sin. You know, I find that we disregard these things too when we commit sin. You say, what are they? Well, number one, I would say this, we see him disregarding the humiliation of his sin. Verse 12, she says this, no such thing ought to be done in Israel. She says, do not thou this folly. She says in verse 13, you're going to be spoken of as one of the fools in Israel. She's saying, don't you realize the shame this is going to cause if you commit this? Well, of course Amnon knew. Because anyone would know. Never has it been appropriate or acceptable in society. There might have been times because of the wickedness of society that it was tolerated. But never has it been accepted for a man to do what Amnon did. He knows, particularly in Israel in that day, that he's going to be spoken of as a fool, as a coward, as a craven, as a cruel man the rest of his life. But in that moment, he didn't care. Uh, listen, I, I, and, I, and I hope you understand the spirit that I'm about to say this in, but let's not try to play God for a fool. Let's not try to pretend like we don't know what right and wrong is. Hey, listen, we're not some pygmy living out in the jungle trying to figure out who God is by staring at the sun. we got a Bible in front of us. We live in one of the most biblically educated uh, countries and civilizations throughout human history. We've been given more light than any other people has ever been given. Let's not try to play God for the fool and play dumb and uh, try to treat God like we don't know what's going to happen when we commit sin. We know what's going to happen. But in that moment, you know what your flesh will do? Your flesh will set that aside. And ignore that. Number two, I see him not only disregarding the humiliation of his sin, but I see him disregarding the help from his sin. 
Tamar says something interesting. I think it's probably true. I don't know how I feel about it, but I think it's probably true. She says in verse 13, Now therefore I pray thee, speak unto the king, for he will not withhold me from thee. Now let me say this, I don't believe it was acceptable in the eyes of God for there to be incestual relationships. I understand there was a time in human history when the gene pool was so small that there was no choice. Otherwise, my pastor used to always laugh. People would ask him a question and they would say, where did Cain get his wife? And he'd say, from his mama. You know, uh, There was a time we know that that was true in human history. But by the time we get down here, that's not the case. It's not acceptable. I know it happened in royal families in particular. There was a lot of intermarriage uh, that took place in families and incest uh, that took place. I, I don't. I, that's why I say I don't think it's acceptable, but it's probably true. Tamar in saying, if you'll just talk to our father, he'll let us marry. And you don't have to do this was probably true. And here's what she's saying. She's trying to give him an out. She's saying there's a way to get what you desire without violating me or our trust. I want to be careful I say this. There's not always a right way to satisfy. There are some desires we have that are wrong, that are sinful. And there's no sanctioned or scriptural way to satisfy those things. We've got to mortify those desires. But let me say that very often the temptations that the devil broaches us with, approaches us with, they will be things that are not necessarily wrong in and of themselves. And let me say that the desire, the attraction he had for a beautiful young lady, that in and of itself was not wrong. It was the nature of his relationship with that girl that was wrong and the fact that he was seeking to abuse her and violate that trust and defile the sanctity of marriage that was wrong. But what she says to him is remarkable. She says, you don't have to do this. There is a better way. Can I just say this? Every time that we're tempted to sin, the devil will come along and he'll say, this is the only way that you can enjoy happiness. And you know what the Holy Ghost does? He comes along and to every believer he says, there's a better way. You don't have, that's not where happiness is. It's not where peace is. That's not where satisfaction is. I'd say it this way. He disregarded not only the humiliation of his sin, but the help from his sin. You know, the Bible tells us this, that uh, no temptation has taken us, but such as is common to man. But God will with the temptation make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. No man has ever sinned because it was his only choice. I'll just say that again. No man has ever sinned because it was his only choice. There is always a choice to do right. It may cost you your life. It may cost you your livelihood. It may cost you your standing in society. But there is always the choice to do right. And you know what he did? Though God gave him an option, an escape hatch, a way out, he disregarded it. And you know, we tell ourselves this when we're tempted. Well, well, you know, I just can't bear it. I can't help it. Just can't help myself. Yeah, that's true. You can't help yourself. That's why you have to mortify yourself. That's true. You can't help yourself because in your flesh dwelleth no good thing. By the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. So you have to mortify your flesh. You have to reckon it as dead, as not ranking on your priority list. The only place that dead men hold any sway is in voter rolls. Somebody say amen. But in the eyes of God, a dead man bears no reckoning. And in our eyes, we don't we don't take into account. Uh, we've had lots of votes at our church over various matters uh, throughout my 11 years uh, past, but we've never gone down the cemetery to take a roll call. Because a dead man's opinion doesn't matter. So preacher, what do I do when I'm tempted to sin? You just remind yourself that that old dead flesh don't get a, it don't get a voice. It don't get a vote. It don't get a say. It didn't buy you. It didn't purchase you. It didn't save you. It didn't enliven you. So it don't get a say in things. I'd say this, he disregarded his help. I guess we better get this preached this morning so you can go home. Number three, I would say, look at verse 14. How be it 
she would not hearken, he would not hearken unto her voice. But being stronger than she, forced her and lay with her. I don't know about you, it's hard for me to read that. That's, that's a very perfect, inspired word of God. Said exactly like it ought to be. And by the way, don't you appreciate the Holy Ghost's tact? Doesn't he say that in such a way that makes clear that Tamar had no part in this? She didn't desire to have any part in this? And it speaks in a way that is both vivid and clear. We're not left wondering what happened, but it's not spoken in a crass or unkind way. It's amazing how God said that. All that being said, it's still hard for me to read. I mean, I just sort of recall about that. I, there's a part of me would prefer if it, if it just wasn't there. I know it needs to be, but I would say this. You know what he disregarded? He disregarded the horror of his sin. I mean, how could he do this? Did he not, as a brother, that, that had, that had played with Tamar when she was a little girl? And I don't know what all the age, uh, dynamics were there, but the Bible says he was stronger than her. He was bigger than her. We don't know what ages they might have been, but was there not a moment when he stopped and said, what am I doing? How can I do such a thing? Can I tell you? There wasn't. There wasn't a moment when he said that. Not till after it was done. <laughs> Your flesh is powerful. My flesh is powerful. I mean, think about that, that he would commit this atrocity. I, I know and understand what he did was wicked and was ungodly, but it, we would probably seek to cast him as some fundamentally broken individual. Here's what I think. I think he was a weak man that flirted with sin and it led him to this evil conclusion. The reality is this, and you say, well, preacher, you shouldn't frame it that way. That's not how we should talk about it. No, I'm just talking the way your flesh is going to talk about it. Because your flesh is going to come along and is going to rationalize and justify every temptation that you have. Every temptation that you have. It's going to come along and going to say, well, you're not such a bad person after all. It won't be till afterwards that the flesh will plunge the knife in your back and say, what a dirty, rotten, filthy criminal you are. I see him disregarding the horror of his sin. But then notice this, we see him, verse 15, I won't say much about it, but verse 15, we see him not only disregarding, we see him despising. Verse 15 is very telling. The Bible says, Then Amnon hated her exceedingly, so that the hatred wherewith he hated her was greater than the love wherewith he had loved her. Amnon said unto her, Arise, be gone. He doesn't want her in the room anymore. He doesn't want her in his... She's just a reminder of his evil. And she said unto him, There's no cause. This evil in sending me away is greater than the other that thou didst unto me. But he would not hearken unto her. Let me pause and say this. That is a Mount Everest of spiritual maturity on Tamar's part. You can disagree with what I'm about to say. That's fine. You probably disagreed with a lot of what I've said this morning. But it is amazing what she says there. She says to him, We could still salvage this, Amnon. And by the way, it's not because it would help her. She would have been marrying a cruel man. But it was because of her love for him and her pity for him. Think about I don't know that I would have said it. I don't know that I would have took that position. If it had been me, I would have probably went running from the room, called for my king and said, take off his head. He's a criminal and a cruel man. But she looks with pity at Amnon and says, it's not too late, Amnon. When she says this evil thou didst in sending me away, what she's saying is we could go right now and be married and put this whole ugly thing behind us. But he says, no, I'm not interested in that. I'm not in this for a long-term marriage, Tamar. I just wanted a moment of pleasure. Now I'm done with you. Get out of my room. The Bible says, it, I mean, it gets worse. It says, 
Verse 17, then he called his servant that ministered unto him and said, put now this woman. Isn't that amazing? She went from being Absalom's sister to being his sister to now this woman. It's funny how our estimation of the value of sin changes depending on where we're at in things. It's amazing how whenever we know it's wrong and know we shouldn't be doing it, oh, it's somebody else's sister. It's amazing how in the heat of temptation, when we are indulging that desire, oh, it's my sister. And then in the moment of guilt and shame afterwards, when we see in the cold light of day what we've done, it's just this woman. And the Bible says this, they put her out and they bolted the door after her. I would say this, we see him despising. That verse is very telling. The hatred wherewith he hated her was greater than the love wherewith he had loved her. How many times is sin going to fool us? How many times are we going to sit there in the brokenness and guilt and shame, hating what we desired so much, hating it worse than we desired it, before we'll quit playing the fool, have a little bit of forethought, sit down, journal it out, my friend, whatever you have to do, and remind yourself that sin's never worth it. It's never worth it. It left him worse than how it found him. And now the hatred he has. You know why he hated it? Because she was just a reminder of his iniquity, of his unrighteousness, of his cruelty, of his crime. And so he kicks her out of the room. He doesn't want it anymore. Sin looks real good before you've committed it. But in the moments afterwards, it has a bitter taste. I'd say we see uh, Amnon's iniquity. I'm just going to mention these. I ain't even going to preach them. Look, we see sin's calamity. Verse 18, what did it do? Verse 18 says, She that Tamar had a garment of divers colors upon her, for with such robes were the king's daughters that were virgins apparelled. Then his servant brought her out and bolted the door after her. And Tamar put ashes on her head and rent her garment of divers colors that was on her and laid her hand on her head and went on crying. Look at the end of verse 20. Tamar remained desolate in her brother Absalom's house. I'd say number one, we see the defilement that it brought. Sin always defiles. Hey, you know why, you know why she tore that, that garment? Because she was no longer a virgin. You couldn't put that garment back together. Just like you couldn't put her purity and her mind back together. She could not unexperience what she had experienced. You know what sin does in our life? It puts things in our experience that can never be gotten rid of. She tore that cloak as an outward symbol of what had happened to her, what had been done to her. And she was saying, I'm now a different person than who I used to be. You know what sin will do in your life and mine? It will make us different people than we used to be. Hey, there's probably folks in here that would just be honest enough to admit this this morning, that there's things you wish you could unsee, things you wish you could undo, things you wish you could unsay, things you wish you could unhear. But the garment has been ripped and the ashes have been placed and your sin has changed you. And the grace of God is sufficient And the grace of God, hey, listen, I'm glad where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. But you can't put the garment back together. It's done. The defilement that it brought. Number two, look what happens. The Bible says in verse 21, King David heard all these things. He was very wroth. And Absalom spake unto his brother Amnon, neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had forced his sister Tamar. Now, I think an argument could be made that David reminds us here of God the Father. I think an argument could be made that Absalom here, though we think of him as a very unrighteous man, and he was, I think he could be uh, picturing the arm of justice of God, of dispensing God's justice and judgment. But can I just notice this? 
uh, it forever changed his relationship with his family. I'd say we see the defilement it brought, but number two, we see the distance that it brought. All of a sudden now, his daddy didn't want to see him. His brother didn't want to speak to him. It brought a distance in his relationship. You'll find this to be true just as I have, just as all of us have undoubtedly in our life. When we commit sin, all of a sudden there's a distance between us and God. You say, but doesn't God love me? Yeah, God still loves me. And David still loved Amnon. But won't God forgive me? Yeah, God will forgive you. And David would have forgiven Amnon just as he later on forgave Absalom for what Absalom did. But it doesn't change the fact that where there's sin, our sin separates us from our God. And it produces a distance in our life. Isn't it amazing the Bible says that David was very wroth. It doesn't tell us how Amnon responded to that. It doesn't say, so Amnon fell at his feet and pled with him and asked forgiveness and said, oh my father, please grant me forgiveness. How shameful I am. The Bible says that Absalom didn't speak to his brother, neither good nor bad. Now, I don't know about you, but last I checked, it takes two people to have a conversation. We're not told that Amnon ever went to Absalom and said, I'm sorry, what I did was wrong. It was evil. Please forgive me. I'll never get over what I've done. And I know Tamar won't either. Never once. You know why? He just let that distance linger there. And you know, that's what we do oftentimes. We get in sin. We don't deal with it. We just let that distance linger there. And it gets vaster and vaster. I see the distance that it brought. Number twenty, uh, Verse number 28, the Bible says, Now Absalom had commanded his servants, saying, Mark ye now, when Amnon's heart is merry with wine, and when I say unto you, Smite Amnon, then kill him. Fear not, I have not I commanded you. Be courageous and be valiant. And the servants of Absalom did unto Amnon as Absalom had commanded. I see the death that it brought. It wound up costing him his life. I want to be very clear with what I'm about to say now. When a person is saved, is born again, when they believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, receiving the Savior, they're eternally saved. There's nothing that can take that salvation away. You say, preacher, what if, what if I sin? Then I will not have earned it. You didn't earn it in the first place. It was a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. But there is such a thing as the light of the life, the spiritual life of Christ in us. In other words, there's some Christians that are living and you can see the life of Christ in them, man. You can see their witness, their testimony, their boldness. And then there's other people that uh, they've stifled that, they've smothered that, and, and uh, they say they're saved. I trust that they are. But if a person didn't know any better, you couldn't see any spiritual life in the way that they live and behave. And in that sense, let me say that sin will bring death in our life. It'll bring death in our life. It'll quench everything that God's doing in our life. And we'll be like Lot. We'll get to heaven. And I know the Bible when it talks about just Lot, I know it's talking about his justness, his rightness with God, that he he had righteousness imputed unto him. But I've always thought, I'm sure you have too when you read that, when he got to heaven, man, it was just Lot. (laughs) There wasn't nothing else. It was just Lot. When you look at what Sodom and Gomorrah did to his life, it stripped everything of God away from him. So the only thing that was left righteous about him was his soul. And even that was vexed day and night with their evil doings. I see sin's calamity. And finally, I want you to just notice Jonadab's cruelty. How did Jonadab respond to all this? Well, we would like to think Jonadab, realizing what he had done, would come and would, would fall in contrition. Maybe he would even say, I, when I told Amnon to do I never dreamed he would have done that. I, I could have never imagined. I feel partially guilty in what's happened. But how did Jonadab behave? What did he do? How did he try to help his friend Amnon? He's his friend, right? How did he try to help him? I noticed three things he did. Look what it says in verse 30. came to pass while they were in the way. That's talking about the king's sons, the ones other than Amnon. After Amnon is slain, they leave, they flee the feast that Absalom had made. 
The Bible says in, in verse number 29, Then all the king's sons arose, and every man gat him up upon his mule and fled. And it came to pass while they were in the way that tidings came to David. So the sons are not back. Tidings are sent ahead, saying, Absalom hath slain all the king's sons, and there is not one of them left. Then the king arose and tare his garments and lay on the earth. And all his servants stood by with their clothes rent. And Jonadab, the son of Shimea, David's brother, answered and said, Let not my lord suppose that they have slain all the young men, the king's sons. For Amnon only is dead. Can I ask you a question? How could he know such a thing? The king's sons have not returned. And the only tidings that have been brought is that all the king's sons have been slain. He doesn't say, don't fret David. He probably couldn't have killed all of them. Maybe there's two or three left. He says, they are not all dead. Only Amnon is dead. How could he have known such a thing? I'll tell you how he could have known. Because he knew ahead of time. He knew what was about to happen ahead of time. He goes on to say this happened by the appointment of Absalom for what he did to Tamar when he forced his sister. He knew ahead of time. So can I ask you this question? Where was his help? Why didn't he help Amnon? He's his friend, right? You would have thought he went to him and said, Amnon, don't go to that feast. You go down to that feast, you'll never come back. Absalom seeks to kill you. But can I say it this way? He abandoned him to his fate. I know the flesh wants us to think the devil's going to come riding in on a white horse and rescue us when sin finally bears its fruit in our life. But can I just be the bearer of bad news for you for a moment? He ain't going to. You know what he'll do? He'll abandon you to your fate. You, you listen, you know what that, that sin will do? It won't soothe you for the rest of your life like a pacifier. It won't make you feel good. It will abandon you the moment it's done with you. He could have saved Amnon. But why would he save Amnon? After all, a good argument could be made. The whole purpose of this was to kill Amnon. Can I remind you, the devil is not interested in you having a good time. On the devil's priority list, you having a good time is non-existent. He does not tempt you because he looks uh, across at you and thinks you look sad and wants to make you feel better. I know that's what the flesh tells us, but he ain't interested in making us feel better. His plan was always to destroy us. So why would we think then that in the moment of need and rescue that he would save us? His goal the whole time was to kill us. So of course he will not help us. He abandoned him to his fate. Then this is amazing. Look what it says in verse 32 at the end. He says, for by the appointment of Absalom, this hath been determined from the day that he forced his sister Tamar. He abandoned him to his fate. Number two, he accused him to the father. He says, Amnon had this coming for what he did to Tamar. Now, it's interesting. David already knew what he had done. But Jonadab knew that. Jonadab already knew what he had done and knew everybody else knew what he had done. But Jonadab already knew that everybody knew. So what's his purpose in doing this? Well, the same thing that the devil's purpose is. He's trying to exalt himself against us. You know, the Bible calls uh, the devil in the book of Revelation the accuser of the brethren. He ain't your friend. He ain't your friend. In that moment of unrighteousness, you think he's going to sit back and say, oh yes, that's my boy, look, look how he's sinning. No, he's going to run up to the throne room of God and say, don't you see what a wicked child you have? Why did he say this to David? He wanted to hurt David. He wanted to hurt David. He wanted David to be reminded of his shame, of his failure as a parent. And he wanted to try to hurt the testimony and estimation of Amnon. And so he accuses him to the father. Notice the final thing, and I'm done. He availed himself over his fall. Look at verse 33. Now therefore, let not my lord the king take this thing to his heart, 
to think that all the king's sons are dead. For Amnon only is dead. Can I pause and say this? Amnon thought Jonadab's friendship was a sign that he was the most loved and valued in Jonadab's esteem. But what we learn here is that Jonadab's friendship with Amnon was a sign of the lowness of his estimation. He says to David, at least it's only Amnon. At least it's only Amnon. You know, the devil's not interested in you because he thinks so much of you. He's interested in you because he thinks so little of you. God's the one that thinks much of you. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believed in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. He loved the world, gave Himself for you. He commendeth His love toward us. He's the one that loves you and thinks much of you. The devil doesn't. You remember whenever Christ was talking to Simon Peter and He said, Simon, Simon, Satan hath desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat. That's interesting. When you sift wheat, you're separating the chaff from the wheat. You're separating the real from the fake. And the Lord tells Peter, the reason Satan's interested in you is because he thinks you're fake. And he thinks he can destroy you. Just like Jonadab, he thought little of Peter. And that's why he was interested in him. Jonadab thought little of Amnon. That's why he was interested in him. And then notice what he says, verse 35, Jonadab said unto the king, this is amazing, Behold, the king's sons come. As thy servant said, so it is. You know what he does? He looks at David and said, told you so. Told you so. He uses the sin of Amnon as a reason to try to humiliate the king. And he says, after all, I was right, wasn't I? He said, preacher, why is the devil interested in my life? So that when you sin, he can look towards God in heaven and say, see, I was right. Why did he do what he did in Job's life? God looks at, at, at the devil in, in the book of Job and the, he says, where art thou come from? And the devil says, from walking up and fro and to, uh, to and fro and up and down in the earth. You know what that was? That was his way of saying, I've been going anywhere I want and been doing anything I want. I've been living however I want to. I've been running things down here. And you know what the Lord says? He says, hast thou considered my servant Job? says, uh, you may be running uh, most things, but you ain't running everything. Because look at Job. He's still living for me. And the devil looks at him and he says, uh, if you turn your hand against him, he'll curse you to your face. What would have happened if Job had done that? The devil would have ran right up to the throne room of God and said, see, I told you so. The devil's only interest in your life is in trying to bring shame to God. God's only interest in your life is trying to bring glory out of your life. So the question is, who really was Amnon's friend? Was it Jonadab or was it the Lord that loved him that tried to spare him of sin's consequences? Who's really the friend in your life? I'll tell you this, it ain't sin. It ain't the flesh. It ain't the devil. It's the, it's the Christ that bought us, that saved us, that keeps us, that loves us, that through His Word and His Spirit guides us and protects us. We ought to cast in our lot with Him. And just let Jonadab keep walking. Let's bow together this morning. As a musician comes to play, the altar is open. And I want to give you a moment to deal with the Lord. There's a likelihood. In fact, to me, it's almost unthinkable. Not, not as any testimony on the sermon, but just the truth that's been spoken of. It's hard to imagine there wouldn't be some hearts God dealt with. It smites my heart to think about what God has done in my life and how poorly I've treated Him.
there could be something in your life that God has addressed this morning. If that's the case, why don't you meet Him in this altar and address that with Him? Why don't you ask His... If it's sin, ask forgiveness. Ask to be cleansed of it. Ask God to take it away from you. If it's some failure, some act of disobedience, sin of omission and not doing, ask God's forgiveness. Ask help to to, uh, stand up and to do right in your life. But whatever it is, don't let the distance grow. Instead, draw close unto Him. He'll draw close unto you. Father, bless this invitation. May it magnify the Lord Jesus.